Um, but I read this fantastic interview with one of the researchers where they were asking, why are they doing this thing? And the best explanation the researchers could come up with was like, well, you know what teenagers are like with their fads? Did one of them say to you, I told you I'll do? Very nice. Um, and then, uh, and then at, the, at the end of the interview, the interviewer asked the researcher, like, if there was anything that you could tell the SEALs, what would you tell them? And the researcher kind of like sighed in a very world-weary way and said, I just need you to make better choices. <laughs> so I made my friend design this T-shirt with a, it's a SEAL with an eel up its nose. I, would, I, you I will it. pay money for, to have well, one of So those. you can buy it on Redbubble. Um, oh, I don't want it that much, no. Oh. <laughs> Um, but if you go to her shop, Curious Octopus, yeah. you can <coughs> buy this now. Wow, bad way. I normally love a slogan tea for comedy gigs, but I um, was gigging in Aylesbury last night and didn't go home till one o'clock in the morning. So I... I got a freebie one. My son's studying marine biology in Wales, so... Can I have a freebie one? She's already got a free ticket and a free T-shirt. Um, What's his number? I've been looking for a marine biologist. <laughs> Look at this. You're haggling, love it. Well, I hate to bring this conversation to a close. But, um, <laughs> I guess we need to crack on with what we were planning to do. There's, as I was saying, there's no introductory music. Uh, one of the panellists actually sang an introduction to the show yesterday, which is, which is amazing. Uh, but it's, I haven't given you any pre-warning of that. So rather than that, I'm just going to say, welcome to It Just So Happened. Yay! Um, I am Richard Pulsford, a stand-up comedian and amateur historian, and this is the Alternative History Show. It's a show of two halves. In part one, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 5th of May. And in part two, we'll de develop some alternative histories for the location of today's show, which is Brighton. And, and Hove, and Hove. Brighton. We are performing today as a show in the Brighton Fringe, which is England's largest arts festival, with over 4,500 performances and events taking place over a whole month. And we are the guests of Sweet Venues in their works building in the heart of the lanes. Now, in theory, today we should have four panellists. Uh, we are at the moment down to three uh, for reasons which hopefully will become apparent as time goes on. So the running order is going to change slightly, unless that is our fourth panellist arriving. Ooh, no, no, it's another audience member. You're welcome anyway. <laughs> we're not say that. to see you, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're just missing a panellist. <laughs> we're all like, ooh. We're looking for volunteers. Uh, <laughs> So, what we're going to do is introduce who would have been our second guest, who's now our first guest, and that is David Robinson, who is... In fact, I haven't introduced everybody who is here, sorry. Please give it up, first of all, for David Robinson, <laughs> Kerry Bradley, and Annie Harris. Uh, and the empty chair at the start. So now I'm going to talk about David Robinson. Uh, David has worked as a musician and in broadcasting for five years and has written stand-up comedy for two other performers for the last two years and is slowly branching out into performing his own material. So we're going to be hearing some of that just now. So over to you, John. Thank you very much. Uh, David, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking David. at the mixing up my panellists, you see. Right, OK. Uh, thank you, everybody. Um, on the 5th of May, Alan B. Shepard became the first American man in space in uh, 1961. And when I found out I had to do this programme, I figured all the good dates had been taken because on the 5th of May, each performer has to talk about something which is relating to the 5th of May. And we had to clear it with the host because according to the tea towels and the key rings, only two or three things are allowed to happen on any given date 
in history. And so fortunately, the fourth panellist isn't here because I don't know what he would have um, spoken about. Now, then I realised that something does happen. Every single day, something does happen, but history don't always record it. You see, what's in, what's out? There's an office somewhere where they determine these things. And for every inclusion, there are thousands of omissions. And I'd like to know why. Because going into space in 1961 weren't that big a deal because a dog had been up in 1957. <laughs> now, if I was Alan Shepard, uh, the astronaut, that made me feel pretty bad being beaten by a dog. Like, I don't know if he knew or like the guys at NASA like kept it secret because they don't want to discourage the guy. But if in the pursuit of my life ambition, I'd been beaten by a dog, I don't think I could ever get like, my life back on track. <laughs> like, I would like to beat a dog at everything except wet his nose. Um, good news, you came second in your algebra test. Bad news, first place was won by Butch. Um, <laughs> I hope they were gentle when they told him, you know, Alan, like he comes back to Earth, you know, like expecting a hero's welcome. And he goes into a diner and like he's still like doing the spaceman walk, even though he's back on Earth, like takes off his big glass hat. And, um, you know, here, listen, I have something that no person has ever done before. And all his like buddies are laughing at him and Frank's like, oh yeah, did you catch a tennis ball in your teeth? <laughs> like, I would like to know that, like, you know that the dog has been bragging down at the, uh, the kennels at the precinct. Like, hey, what did you do today, Rex? Well, I dug a hole and I buried a bone in it. Oh yeah, and Fido, well, I've mostly been putting my little doggy penis in another dog's ass. Well, I've been trying to fly a Soviet spacecraft. Excuse me, fellas, I've got a drink from the toilet. And I wonder how they recruited him, the dog, I mean. Like, hey, Rin Tin Tin, would you like to come to space? Yeah, I haven't been this excited since I've seen a duck. Excuse me, Commander, I hope you don't mind if I hump your blue trousered uniform leg there. That's the thing I do. And you know, the dog be like all serious, like serious on meet the press before the flight. Like he's real collected, answering questions, you know, woof, woof, woof. And I think he treated like the longest game of fetch, like the Russians just fired a big stick and he had to bring it back. And, and uh, if I was Alan Shepard, I'd be spending the rest of my life trying to be getting back on track and excelling at activities that dogs could never do. They're like napkin folding, driving in a state, and like, Alan B. Shepard, he was really trying to work on two legs just to rub it in, because like, dogs don't do that real well. And then he watched Crufts one year, and like, there was a dog on his hind legs dancing to Prince with a lady, and the dogs got rhythm. And you see my reasoning? Alan Shepard, he should be off the 5th of May list, because his name is even Shepard, and the best shepherds are dogs. <laughs> But let's see who's been taken off the list while Shepard remains. Can anybody here tell me, and thankfully there is an audience now, can anybody here, can anybody here tell me, what is the name of the first British person in space? Well, I'll tell you. Her name is Helen Sharman. Yes. That's right, a woman is the first British astronaut in space. What an achievement. This is something everybody should know. And has anybody heard of her? I have not. It seemed like we had not. And it's wrong. Her name should be plastered on everything children read. It should be the first thing kids get told. In 1542, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. By the way, Helen was the first British person in space. It should happen, but the rule board decided that it shouldn't. Because we all know Tim Peake. His takeoff to the International Space Station was broadcast live on TV. And they've flown over like a bunch of school children. And the, one of the commentators from the BBC asked the kids what he would like Tim Peake to do. Uh, during the launch, and the kid says a thumbs up. He would like the astronaut Tim Peake to do a thumbs up. So the rocket goes up, the air is tense, as gravitational lift is reached. The camera right is on him, 
Tim Peake does a thumbs up to the audience at home and the kids freak. They're jumping up and down. They're throwing papers. The commentator loves it. What a hero this man is. A real icon for these children. The thumb goes up and the spirits of the young go up with him in the rocket. It was lovely how the worm can turn. A minute or two later, he does it again. Up with the thumb. And now my heart's in my mouth. A far more muted response. A third time I wanted to jump out a window. He can't stop putting his thumbs up. The children are asleep. A fourth time, the children have gone back to bullying. John's picking his ears and the girl in Form B is kicking the milk monitor. It's a disaster. Tim Peake, who makes the facts that we know? And so, uh, if you're an astronaut, nobody will care and you've already been beaten by a dog. Peace. Thank you, David. So, segues now on 5th of May. Uh, 5th of May 1821 was the day that Napoleon died, aged just 52. After being defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, Napoleon was exiled to the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic Ocean. In 1961, an elevated level of arsenic was found in hair taken from Napoleon, inspiring rumours of arsenic poisoning. This was then thought to be related to the wallpaper at Longwood House, where he was held under house arrest which contained high levels of arsenic in the pigments. Uh, Longwood House wasn't particularly big, so hardly a Napoleon complex. <laughs> the autopsy cited stomach cancer as the cause of death, something which a study in the 20th century indicated his father had also died of, but which a later study found was likely caused by an ulcer-causing bacterial infection in his stomach. Uh, then again, Napoleon is quoted as saying, history is a set of lies agreed upon. If he had died in battle, well, he might have been Napoleon blown apart. <laughs> that would have been much easier. So now on to our second or third guest, depending on how we look at it. Um, this is Caris Bradley. Caris. Caris, I'm so sorry. I did, did try to check beforehand and I still got it wrong. I'm sure you'll keep me right. Welsh name struggles. <laughs> the person on my left is a scientist and stand-up comedian who researches the dark web and uses graphs to make jokes. Uh, their parody science lecture, A Unifying Theory of Gay, is at the Brighton Fringe from the 6th to the 10th of May. Over to you. Thank you. Uh, thanks. So uh, I am a scientist, so I thought I'd pick a, a science one um, for something that happened on this day. Um, but I'm afraid that my what happened on May the 5th is a bit of a cheat, and it's a bit of a cheat for two reasons. Um, firstly, because it's from the year 2000, so it's kind of contentious as to whether or not that's history. Um, <laughs> and secondly, because it didn't actually happen. Um, so, um, but I, I have some arguments for why it should still be included. We can send these off to the office that decides who puts the things that happen on the 5th of May on the website that I read. Um, so my event is the alignment of the planets Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars and Jupiter um, and Saturn. And this occurred uh, on the 5th of May 2000. So first of all, does the year 2000 count as a historical date? Um, I think that like, we can all agree that it was nearly two decades ago, because that's a fact. Um, and also, <laughs> the year 2000 was a very different different year to this one. So um, I was still in primary school. Uh, the iPhone hadn't been invented. You could buy a pint for two pounds. So it's like a How very, you know that if you're in very different. <laughs> <laughs> um, because uh, because there are an awful lot of databases that tell you the um, exact price of a pint in any any day any year. Oh. Um, so I learned something today. Yes, that is the point of the podcast. I think. Um, <laughs> 
So also, as this is an astronomical event, uh, I think it's worth pointing out like history is kind of uh, subjective um, and from and, and almost inconsequential. So from Venus's point of view, um, all of humanity happened yesterday. So whether or not we're talking about the year 2000 or the year 2000 um, BC, T AD or, or BC, like to the planets, all happened in the same same like blink of an eye if they had eyes. Um, so that's why I think that, first of all, it is a historical uh, event. As to whether or not it actually happened, um, that's kind of a question of perspective. So the planets did not align in the sense that you could draw a straight line with a ruler from Mercury to Saturn, because rulers of that length do not exist. Um, <laughs> but they did appear to be aligned from our perspective. So if you looked, if you were able to see the planets and you looked at them, it looked like they were lined up. Um, and this event was predicted to bring with it the end of the world. So, how was the world going to end? Uh, this uh, was in contention with several different soothsayers uh, predicting different things. So, I uh, did a little bit of research on what all of the, the doomsayers said was going to be the fate of the Earth. Um, so, the Babylonian Barosus predicted that there would be earthquakes, um, whereas the Nuwabian nation, a cult following a man called Dwight York, which is not <laughs> the name of a man that you would like give up your entire life to follow. Um, so, they were a cult who had an Egyptian-themed compound in Georgia, um, and it was pretty popular until Dwight York was arrested um, for embezzling money and also doing a lot of other terrible, terrible things. Um, but anyway, they thought that all the planets were going to fall into the sun, which would be very bad. Um, in 1997, there was a guy called Richard Noon who uh, wrote a book called Ice, the Ultimate Disaster, um, and he argued that the alignment of the planets would trigger tons of ice to fall from the South Pole um, and flood the rest of the wor world in um, an icy death. So it's a bit like a fil the film uh, The Day After Tomorrow, but that didn't come out until 2004. So um, <laughs> clearly his prediction was um, you know, founded. So Noon supposedly learned of the Earth's fate when he uncovered an encoded message from an ancient Egyptian who had survived a similar disaster thousands of years before. Um, and I did look into um, the events that occurred after May the 5th, 2000, to see if any of them could be considered indicators of the apocalypse um, and found like a a top quality website that looked like it was made, you know, when the uh, internet was first created. Um, it was made in the year 2000 that pointed out that Putin was inaugurated as president of Russia on May the 7th, 2000. Um, so if we ignore the fact that he was elected prior to the alignment and it was just his inauguration, um, then that's a pretty good sign of the apocalypse, I think. Um, the fun thing with the end of the world is that you, you don't actually have to be that precise. Uh, you can just kind of like look at things that are vaguely related and, and claim that they're connected to the end of the world. So um, let's take Brexit as an example. <laughs> Was this caused by the, 2000, uh, the year 2000 alignment of the planets? Um, we can't know for sure, but just a few days later, Theresa May uh, was a finalist for the BBC writing competition, calling on MPs to write about their first day at primary school. Um, <laughs> And I feel that perhaps this early career success uh, paved the way for her to become Prime Minister. In her essay, she recalls crying uh, um, and being upset at uh, being in school, but nonetheless was, was carried kicking and screaming into the classroom. And this may be inspiration for her current governance approach. <laughs> also in May 2000, um, United in Diversity was adopted as the European motto. Uh, so, on, uh, so in this month, right, when the planets aligned, um, the EU chose United in Diversity as, as their a motto, a motto that very much symbolizes what Vote Leave seem to really hate about the union. Now, is this a coincidence? Like, who is to say? Um, I think if the ancient Babylon, Babylonians believed that uh, May the 5th was the end of the world, despite having a 
different calendar um, to us, and there were all of these other people who thought that we were going we to die. We didn't die in an icy death, but the political situation is quite chilly at the moment. Um, so that's my what happened on, on May the 5th in the year 2000. Thank you, Keris. On this day in 1905, the mask murders trial of brothers Alfred and Albert Stratton began in London. They were accused of murdering Thomas and Anne Farrow, who had been attacked at their oil paint shop in Deptford. An empty cash box had been found at the crime scene, with a greasy fingerprint on the inside, and that was taken away for examination by Detective Inspector Charles Collins, who was the head of Scotland Yard's Anthropometric Office or Fingerprinting Bureau. He spoke as an expert witness explaining how fingerprinting worked. Uh, Collins informed the jury that of the 800,000 odd individual digit impressions held on file by Scotland Yard, he had never found two different impressions to appear the same. He produced enlarged images of the thumbprints and identified the points of similarities. This scientific approach was enough to convince the jury and the two brothers were charged with murder and hanged. It was the first time in the UK that fingerprint evidence was used to gain a conviction for murder. Uh, with nearly a million prints on file, they must have had a good index. And <laughs> and some big ring binders. I do puns, by the way. So, <laughs> In the story of Cinderella, as the king searched his kingdom to find out who had worn the glass slipper, he used basic anthropometry, which I can't say... Uh, and as Cinderella correctly predicted, one day my fingerprints will come. <laughs> uh, other parts of the body which make us unique are the iris, the retina, ear shape, lips, tongue, voice, teeth and toe print. Uh, meaning it is still possible to uniquely tell one hipster from another. <laughs> so our either third or fourth guest, depending on our <laughs> perspective, is uh, today Annie Harris. So Annie trained in musical theatre at the London College of Music, but while auditioning for the perfect West End role, she fell in love with improvisation and comedy. Annie's debut solo show, Warrior, raises awareness of chronic and mental illness and has inspired people to speak up about their mental and physical health struggles. Over to Annie, thank you. Hello, um, so leading on from that um, lovely biography about a show that I premiered last year, The Brighton Fringe, um, I um, have a chronic illness uh, called fibromyalgia. Um, it's a chronic pain and fatigue condition. It's the same uh, condition that Lady Gaga has. Uh, so I rather affectionately like to call it Lady Gaga disease. Uh, that's not part of my set, just true facts. Um, also, Morgan Freeman has it, uh, Sinead O'Connor and Florence Nightingale. Fun trivia for you. So today, um, uh, so as um, sorry, leading on from that, that does mean that I tend to struggle with um, speaking um, when I'm extremely tired. Um, I was gigging in Aylesbury last night until <coughs> o'clock, and then got home at one o'clock this morning. So today is one of those days. Um, I pretty much removed body parts from the lady at the cafe to uh, to get a cup of tea this morning. Um, so uh, I apologise if I'm I'm a little stuttered. Um, I started my research for this set probably about two hours ago um, and I um, realised that uh, it was uh, 5th of May uh, or as we all uh, probably are aware Cinco de Mayo 
Um, I feel very qualified to talk about this subject because I lived in Spain for a grand total of nine months. Um, so I am extremely qualified to talk about uh, an event that was actually originated in Mexico. Um, I was doing a bit of research this morning. One of my friends uh, who has actually lived in Mexico posted a picture of a jar of mayonnaise inside a sink, which I really enjoyed. Um, I saw someone else <laughs> posting about Cinco de Drinco, which I really enjoyed. It seems that it's the uh, Hispanic St. Patrick's Day, uh, if you like. And uh, one of my other friends, um, he posted a thing uh, called Alternative Ways to Celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Um, I'm, I apologise, uh, it's a lovely infographic and it's from the hashtag Reclaim Cinco. So I can't credit them any more than that. It says, don't you dare put on that sombrero. Try this. Educate yourself. Learn about the history of Cinco de Mayo and how it became a part of the US popular culture. Acknowledge the stereotypes you have internalized and discover why they're problematic. Secondly, support authentic Mexican businesses. No, Chipotle doesn't count. <laughs> Try a family-owned restaurant run by actual Mexican people. We have better food anyway, we promise. So I was going to do one of those sort of like, ah, oh, sombrero, ah, oh, burrito, la, 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 kind of sets that I was like, nope, I've been called out by social media. So um, my partner and I, over a cup of tea this morning, um, actually pulled up the Wikipedia page for Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> Cinco de Mayo in Latin America is an annual celebration held on May the 5th. The date is observed to, uh, to commemorate the Mexican army's victory over the French Empire at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862, under the leadership of General Ignacio Zaragoza. And that's how you pronounce it in Spanish, or uh, Span Spain Spanish. Mexican Spanish would be Ignacio Zaragoza, um, as my partner, who speaks no Spanish, pronounced it last night, and I was like, <laughs> small eye twitch. Um, I've been to Zaragoza, um, and like every Spanish city, um, it has a square, it has a cathedral, it has a nice bridge, and a lot of terrible places to eat. Um, except their bridge was particularly special. Um, I'm just riffing now, and I can't remember why the bridge was special. I think it was designed by a female architect. Somebody help me out, anybody? No? Okay, I'll have to research that one they later They don't even on. know the first woman in space. No, I know, <laughs> I know. It could that have been the so same person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we found out from our little bit of research on Cinco de Mayo that um, these, these celebrations, uh, the celebrations of Cinco de Mayo began in California, where they have been observed annually since 1863. So a year after the initial thing happened, they were like, fuck it, we're going to just do it. We're going to celebrate. We bloody well deserve it, and rightfully so. Um, I am um, also from uh, Wales, uh, originally. I don't sound like I'm from Wales, because I'm from the part of Wales where everyone retires to, um, all the equestrians and the, and the city commuters. Um, and everyone where I'm from talks like this. And we have a, a national um, arts festival, very much like uh, Cinco de Mayo. It's called the Eisteddfod. Uh, and the Eisteddfod is a very sweet and quaint affair. Everyone talks about Welsh culture, how lovely it is. We all read poems by... Um, Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm from the part with the equestrians in it, not the actual Welsh people. Um, and I think it's going to be one of the last ones that's going to turn into a big piss-up because we've got St George's Day, there's always something going on. Mm. St. Patrick's Day, St. Andrew's Day, mm. Cinco de Mayo. All of these days that are celebrating the culture of a place and then suddenly turn into a massive piss-up. 
And I think that Eisted Fod should become a massive piss-up. Is it not already, though? No, it's not. No. It's really not. It's a very Hardly. sweet affair. We yeah. all gather in Cardiff Bay in that lovely big building that I can't remember the name of. Um, thank you. And uh, and it's all very it's all very polite and wonderful. So I say next year we should all uh, head over to Cardiff Bay and, and trash it. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I wanted to sort of round off, really, by finishing off from that infographic which was just so lovely it says here celebrate responsibly no serapes no fake mustache avoid every party store no cinco de drinko my facebook no disrespectful use of spanish no homogenizing latin uh, communities and hold your friends accountable for when they do any or all of these and lastly the one that i think is most important um i'm a comedian and an improviser uh, by trade uh, for my sins but also i believe that having a platform like this means that sometimes i'm responsible just to bring it down a notch and say i have this platform to share these sorts of things so i think the one that's most importantly please denote to our organizations working for immigrant rights if you celebrate this holiday while disrespecting the people to whom it belongs shame on you any day is a good day to start recognizing the equality of all people no matter where they've come from thank you annie thank you <coughs> Not that funny, but important. Well, yes, uh, we, we, do, we do both in this show. So um, I'm going to tell you about on 5th of May 1818, that was when the German philosopher, economist, historian, sociologist, political theorist, journalist and socialist revolutionary Karl Marx was born. Uh, due to his political publications, Marx became stateless and lived in exile with his wife and children in London for decades where he continued to develop his thought in collaboration with German thinker Friedrich Engels and publish his writings, uh, researching in the reading room of the British Museum. His best-known titles are the 1948 pamphlet The Communist Manifesto and the three-volume Das Kapital. He had seven children, of whom, it seems, all his four daughters were called Jenny. Did you know that oh, yep. all of George Foreman's sons are called George and all of his daughters are called Georgia? <laughs> How confusing Fuck is that? No way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it might be Georgina. But yeah. How amazing so is that? Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just sad they're not called like Grill One, Grillina. Surely it would be like Setting One. Setting One. <laughs> yes. I tried to make a That's cheese right. on toast once in a George Foreman, but where you'd think you'd make a, a cheese sandwich, I was extremely drunk and just made a cheese on toast. So yeah. when I pulled it apart, it was right, like those right, like yes. cheese pull yes. videos right. that you get on YouTube. I gave my granddad a George Foreman grill, and he didn't get this. I meant to make your meat lean and stuff, and take all the bad stuff out of it. So there's like a collecting tray for the fat underneath. Yeah. And once he cooked it, he just pulled out the tray and drank it. Oh. <laughs> what? Well, not hot, presumably. No? <laughs> it just oh defeated God. the whole purpose granddad, of buying no. the grill. <laughs> okay, back to Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, some think that Karl Marx's tomb is a communist plot. <laughs> uh, oh, did we ruin the cadence of your joke? It's all right. <laughs> it, it's a joint effort. Oh, he's in, here we go again. So, right. You've so yeah. nicely <laughs> highlighted them in red, and so I know when the jokes are coming. Are the jokes in yes. red? And you're not laughing. And you're not laughing. I'm going to colour code my jokes from now on. <laughs> you're giving the secrets away, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not saying anything <laughs> else. It's also a font size that I can't quite read. So You can um, increase it. Yes, I know. I know. But also, I need... Yes. Right, good. Okay. Anyway, Karl okay. Marx famously said history repeats itself, first as tragedy, second as farce. Uh, this is, however, not a repeat of yesterday's history show. And as Karl Marx also once said, uh, those are my principles, and if you don't like them, well, I have others. <laughs> or was that Groucho Marx? 
Um, then maybe it was Carl who said, I sent the club a wire stating, please accept my resignation. I don't want to belong to any club that will accept me as a comrade. Kid. Yes, you did spoil the flavour, didn't you? Uh, oh, yes, no, that, that no, was no, my fault. Yeah, that was no, my fault. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're on now to the second half of the show. So this is about Brighton. So I'm, I'm a visitor to Brighton. I live in Scotland, so I'm willing to be educated by people who know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, learned quite a bit in yesterday's show. Now, from the research that I've done, Brighton and Anthove is responsible for quite a few firsts. So the, the first first that I'd like to introduce is the first recorded commercial flight. Ooh. So, uh, as a bit of background, on the 25th... What's stupid noise? Ooh. <laughs> no, that was ghosts. We did ghosts yesterday. Oh, so second most haunted place, not the first. I think that's quite a conventional... Like, that's a conventional noise that indicates you're excited about <laughs> yeah, something yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. It's a long Which time ago. It's not breaking news. I like that noise. OK, so 25th of July 1909, Louis Blériot made that first heavier-than-air aircraft crossing of the English Channel. But it was the first ever recorded cargo flight that took off from Shoreham and went to Hove on the 4th of July 1911. And it was Horatio Barber flying his Valkyrie monoplane. Now, Shoreham itself had been founded in 1910 and was the oldest civil airport in the world. Now, depending on which report you read, Barber either landed his plane on Hove lawns, in Wish Park, or outside the town hall. If it had been an EasyJet pilot, he would have been in Southampton. So the cargo itself was a large case of Osram light bulbs, and it was for the General Electric Company, uh, which seems a bit over the top, really, for a commercial flight, just for a few light bulbs. But maybe they thought um, it would be easier flying with light bulbs. <laughs> I'm just going to keep keep going if you're not going to interrupt this time. You interrupt at the wrong moment. So, yeah. I it, that it, one was highlighted in red. Is that what you were looking for as interruption? No, 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 no. That's fine. <laughs> it, so it was reported that not a single light bulb was broken in transit. Um, if any had been broken, no doubt the recipients would have been well incandescent. Thank you. That's not often I get applause. My dad. <laughs> I'm old enough to be your dad, so that's probably right. <laughs> um, I suppose if one of them had been broken, they would have had to say, oh, gone. Oh, you see, oh. <laughs> she's nicking my jokes now. <laughs> is that coming up? Is that actually yes. next? Yes. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I can't actually read so. it. I need to update oh, the description. Right. So I once had to explain why my shipment of light bulbs all ended up broken. I said the light bulbs only work if the gases are gone. <laughs> that was better. But no. <laughs> it's not a competition. So. Uh, so I can hear the receptionist calling the manager. You know, a barber's here with the highlights, sir. And the manager unsure whether that meant he was about to receive new light fittings or a weird hairdo. Um, but anyway, Barber was apparently given £100 uh, as payment for this cargo. And, but he gave that towards prizes in aviation. So he gave it away to charity. Um, and as, as a throwaway fact, I've read that apparently, on the subject of light bulbs, there are 60,000 light bulbs on the Brighton Pier. There you go. don't know if they were delivered. 20,000 seagulls. Yes, probably, yes, yes. So, any inspiration of I killed your... Well, I was just thinking the first flight was from Shoreham to Hove. Yes. They could have got the bus. <laughs> well, it's it would have been the, omni the omnibus, <laughs> would it have been then. Yeah. 
Yeah. This barber, he sounds like he was really switched on. That's. Hey. We're getting into the spirit. Always thinking. <laughs> did you uh, did you say about you mentioned something about Hove lawns and it's, it's a, a flight happened on Hove lawns? So it went from Shoreham to Hove. Yeah. And now I've tried to do my research and find out more about the flight. Now there are three different places apparently where it could have landed. Oh. One of which was Fantastic. the lawns. Well, I'm I'm um, planning my wedding and I for my engagement party I called up Brighton Council to ask them if we could have a gazebo on Hove Lawns yeah. so we could have a picnic for our engagement party um, and my partner was like don't say the word wedding don't say the word wedding I was like okay no problem call them up <laughs> wedding no um, I had called them up I was like hello he was like hello uh, am I through to the right place yes 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 you are um, we are having a party on the 30th of June and we'd like to uh, have quite a few people it'll just be sort of a picnic type thing but we'd, we'd quite like to have a gazebo if that's okay and he goes oh okay um, and I said, yes, it's for our engagement party, which I thought was sort of safe, you know, yeah. but sort of giving him the idea of the magnitude of like, it's important to me, you know, I'd like to have yeah. a gazebo, I'm sure it'd be okay, there's always marquees and stuff down there. And he said, oh no, sorry, we don't do weddings. Oh. And I was like, no, 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 it's an engagement party, it's celebrating our engagement. He's like, yeah, we don't do weddings. I was like, no, 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 you're not listening to me. It's an engagement party. It literally went around like this for about 30 seconds. My partner was like, get off the phone, we'll just do it in Hove Park. So the, yeah. fact that, so the fact that they allowed someone to land a fucking plane <laughs> yes, on yes. there, and I can't have a gazebo, makes well, me infuriated. You couldn't really have many... both, could you? Well, yeah, yeah tell you what, yeah. I'm going to go land a plane down there. I'll be like, I'm yeah. engaged! Yeah. Just tell them you're bringing a hundred light bulbs and they'll be like, sure. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. Your partner's screw them in for you. <laughs> He's much taller than me. Also, Shoreham, uh, Shoreham Airport's in an episode of Poirot. I didn't say was it was it? funny, but a bit of information about that. <laughs> it was in an episode of Poirot because it's old looking, isn't it, Shoreham Controversial Airport? opinion. Mm. Columbo is better than Poirot. Definitely, yeah. yeah. What? Oh, my goodness. I'm so in love with Colombo. Oh, he's the... He's awful. He's awful. And that's why... Like, he's, oh, okay. No, I could talk about this for a while, but I'm going to let you carry on. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll move on then to, to the next I'd, first. Oh, we'd I'm quite sorry, like to hear... We were just going around, yeah. what's everyone's favourites? So we had Co Kojak. Mm -hmm. you, you were not a Poirot fan, you were a Poirot fan? Okay. 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 Did you have a... Yeah. Yeah. Veronica Mars? Yes! Hey. We have a winner. Season four, how excited are you? No, okay. That's a call back to your planets as well, isn't it? Oh yeah, very yeah, good, very, good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. I used to watch Heartbeat, then I realised it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the next first, which again happens to be Hove this time, is uh, for George Albert Smith. He built his own camera and film studio in St Anne's Well Gardens in Hove and shot several films in the gardens. Now, Smith was an English stage hypnotist. He was a psychic and a magic lantern lecturer, as well as a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. I like how I get gestured at every time there's a mention of science. It's the planet. It's the planet. Um, he was an inventor and a key member of the loose association of early film pioneers known as the Brighton School. Now, he acquired the lease of the St Anne's Well Gardens in 1892 and cultivated it into a popular pleasure garden. From 1894, he started staging public exhibitions, and these apparently included hot air ballooning, parachute jumps, I don't know how that worked, a, a monkey house, a fortune teller, a hermit living in a cave. Why and was everything so much better back then? It sounds amazing. <laughs> it does sound amazing. I I how you do parachute jumps? Hang out with a hermit in a cave. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably, the parachute jumps were out of hot air balloons. I mean, not not these monoplanes flying light bulbs, but uh, it's just a 
cafe there now. So apparently Hove, Mo Hove Museum has a permanent display on Smith and uh, his fellow film pioneer James Williamson, who was from Kikodi, which is actually just down the road from where I live, in, at the other end of the country. Anyway, on to the first. So Arthur Albert uh, Collings, known as Esme Collings, he shot the oldest surviving blue movie in Hove. It was in 1896. It was called Woman Undressing, a.k.a. a Victorian lady in her boudoir and was shot in his studio at St Anne's Well Gardens. And it was a simple, casual, one-shot subject in which a woman removes her frock and hat and settles down with a book. So, Ankles galore. <laughs> so I now know what the term blue movie means. I thought it was some kind of like artistic term <laughs> that like described the way that it was shot and the colour, like you have black and white movies. And I realise now that that's not true. That's so pure. So, is well, anyone here from Hove? No. I live there. I'm not from there. Oh, right, I'm from okay. Wales. I'm from Wales. Can my perception of Hove is it's like real swanky and stuff? Is that fair enough? It's got a bit of a boner for itself. <laughs> right, yeah. Because I, I was thinking about Hove and like if the first porn film. Hove yeah. yeah. Uh, that's yes. my view of it. Like, because yeah. I was thinking like if the first porn film was filmed in Hove, like. There's a couple having it away, like at the front, and then like the camera pans back, and in the background there's like a crouton maker. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's real high end. An espresso machine. Yeah. Yielding. Condoms are made of satin. <laughs> you can't get semen out of satin. It's a nightmare. <laughs> Have you tried? I haven't tried. Have you got any satin? <laughs> We could do a scientific experiment later, couldn't we? Yeah. So the guy, um, Von Luke, the guy who discovered the microscope or invented the first microscope, like one of the first things that he did with it was use it to look at his sperm. He was like, there's tiny things inside me. They're <laughs> all swimming around like um, sea monkey, like the first uh, sea monkey. And yet I can't get my very serious pub uh, paper on the dark web published. Aww. Like 200 years ago, people were getting papers about wank published. I looked at my cum in a microscope once and it looked actually looked quite cute. I don't know if you've ever done it. <laughs> Swimming around there under the glass. Is, this the, quite is this the tone that you were hoping for with this podcast? Well, I've introduced <laughs> the subject of pornography, so uh, I, uh, I was kind of setting myself up here, wasn't I? It so looked quite friendly, like a Pixar film I'd have put on. Like little lamps hopping around in your jizz. Just like... <laughs> so did the... Did the... Um, did, did the... Uh, I don't know if it's early... <laughs> Sorry, Sorry, find the right word. Hopping jizzy lamps now. <laughs> did, did, did they imagine that sperm was like tiny, tiny human beings? Yeah, so that's, the... that's definitely one of the yeah. theories. Um, is that an ancient Greek theory that people had like oh, tiny so men it goes back inside a long them? Way. Yeah. I like. Freud would have a field day with that. I am. <laughs> I'm concerned now because I've heard a lot of ridiculous theories that men think about how other men are created, and I often get them confused historically. But I think there's definitely a theory that the men are fully formed um, inside the the balls. Um, <laughs> so that was such but a then those, those and then, men. And then it gets. And then it gets. In, and you have to implant it in a womb um, to let it grow. Like you know those little sponges that you used to get as kids, where you put the water on, then it expands into a. Like, oh, I had one of those. <laughs> yeah. 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 Carbon nineties. But would my, um, sorry. 
Okay. Um, my, my mate had a, uh, he read in the Evening Standard that um, the male sperm count's getting lower, but he didn't realise it was like an evolutionary thing and it takes millions of years. He thought that like, the guy in the year above you at school would have like <laughs> more and the guy in the year below would have less. Sorry. <laughs> Wondering why it uh, didn't need so much satin. As you know. <laughs> Who sits and counts it? Was the, was the question in case it didn't get them. It's pretty uh, small, sperm, I don't... Sperm accountants at the sperm bank, presumably. Hey. Hey. I was yeah. racking my brain, I was like, come on, Annie, come on, come on. Yeah. That, that did not deserve the biggest applaud of the <laughs> show. <laughs> you, put all of our, you put all of my mishmash thoughts about, I was like, sperm, counting, numbers, and you were like, sperm bank, I was like, fuck, sperm bank. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you put all of your... I put all of your eggs in one basket. Hey! Amazing. It's probably worth pointing out to people on the podcast that it is, in fact, Sunday morning. Yeah. And, <laughs> and when I when I met people coming in, everyone looked extremely hungover and didn't feel able to talk. And it's interesting to see how this is going. Um, so uh, just a little bit of background. Uh, we did mention there about blue movies, and and I did look up. Um, the origin of the word blue movies and actually there is no um, consensus on this so th there are three different th theories I've found uh, one is that pornography in its earliest days was very hard to make and film producers had to be you know, naturally secretive and budgets were nearly non-existent so they had to use quick and cheap ways to develop black and white film and that often produced a kind of bluish tint colour to the films so that, that's one theory a second is that blue uh, in Scotland originally meant lewd uh, because prostitutes used to wear blue gowns. Mm. And the third theory is that um, when um, there was lots of nightclubs having kind of like burlesque um, nights, it was standard practice to change the colour filters on the spotlights. So when the star dancer went on for the more explicit parts of her set, then her favourite colour would have been blue. So there you go, no consensus on that. Of course, such productions are almost mainstream nowadays, so I've had to take special care that my kids don't get to watch things like The Blue Lagoon, um, <laughs> Blue Planet, <laughs> and especially Blue Peter. <laughs> uh, what can you do with a toilet roll? Yeah. <laughs> is this a rhetorical question? Or? It is, apparently. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's become uh, one. Yes. I was an extra in a porn film once. I was. I didn't know what it was. I was asked to be, you know, you see adverts on Facebook and they put adverts like, we need something like 50 quid a day to turn up. Don't and go I, to those. And I, didn't have to, <laughs> and I didn't have to, like, participate. But I didn't realise there's, like, a lot of production involved because, like, you were filming, like, a domestic address. And even if you're in your own house, you're meant to have, like, permits and shit. You're not allowed to just go in and start filming porn wherever you like. And it was, there was like a shower scene, and like as soon as the scene was over, you've got like four people on their hands and knees with scoops getting the jizz out of the plug hole because it clogs it up. And if you're in like a domestic address, it can be really problematic. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, Sorry, Pala. Yeah. <laughs> I just love how all that came out of you. Sort of it all like, came out, yes. There's no gag. It's <laughs> just Good. true facts that I need to get out. No, I'd forgotten I, I did appreciate it. Your, I appreciate your honesty and your, and your yeah. candidate. The main guy in it was called Ravine. And that guy, I've never met a Ravine in my life. Surely that was the woman's name. No, it was him. <laughs> big, big Hungarian dude he was, Ravine. Yikes. Big yeah. crack. Yeah. There we go. So, <laughs> anyway. Uh, that was written in red. <laughs> no, that was improvisation. So, uh, you've got to laugh at some porn films. I mean, the ones with clowns in them anyway. Uh, nothing comes funnier. 
Have you ever seen porn bloopers? <laughs> They're one of my favourite things to watch on the internet, porn bloopers. Like, there's people like shagging on a table and the table breaks. So good. So That's just real good. life, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it'd be like, I'm thinking it's going to be like verbal, like bloopers. Like, like oh, oh, you've got an enormous clock. Like, they say the wrong word for me. <laughs> Good. Well, I think we'll change the subject then on to um, another first, this time for Brighton rather than Hove. So uh, Brighton was the first place in Britain to open a naturist beach. I thought we were changing the subject. I was going to say, I've got plenty. I like the filth stuff best. It's just about nakedness, it's not about pornography. Anyway, in August 1979, Brighton Council agreed to become the first major resort in Britain (laughs) to officially set aside part of its seafront to nudists, a 200-yard stretch uh, to the east of the Palace Pier between uh, the marina and Peter Pan's playground. Um, This followed a concerted (laughs) campaign. This is what I read. Was it Peter Pan or Blue Peter Pans? (laughs) I don't know. know. I wasn't around. This followed a concerted campaign by local councillor Eileen Jakes, a 47-year-old grandmother and seafront landlady. In her bid to persuade the fellow councillors to agree to her scheme, she passed around photographs of herself bathing topless in Ibiza. Go on, Eileen. What kind of meeting was that? <laughs> We've had some very strong female heroes we really in this, have. Yeah. this episode. Yeah. I would like to preface this discussion by making it abundantly clear how much I adore the Naturist Beach in Brighton. I've been there many times. Uh, I have been in the nude. Um, and the thing that I love, oh, thank you. The thing that I, the thing that I love, <laughs> still got it. Uh, the thing that I love about the nature speech is that it's quiet, and no one talks to each other, and there are no children. <laughs> and that's what I love. I bet you they would let you have a gazebo for your engagement party. Oh my god. Yeah, wow. Well. I can't imagine my partner saying yes to that. But I was be like boobies, he'd be like, mmm, mmm. <laughs> <laughs> on, on your invitation, pass around a photo of you. Can baby you imagine having nude? my grandmother come to my <laughs> engagement party and just be like, oh, it's on the Naturist Beach, Grandma? She turns up and I'm just like, hey! <laughs> She's like, just get in the car and go back to Wales, bless her. But, but, when we talk about beach, I mean, I grew up in Scarborough and it's a proper beach with sand, but here it's pebbles, isn't pebbles, it? So yeah. is, is that a problem Extremely if you're... Extremely yes. uh, well, feet and lower parts of the body. Now you yeah. say that, I don't know if this is like too indelicate to say, you might have to cut this out, but I went to a nature's beach once and I got sand in my foreskin and it was real painful. It was real difficult trying to get it out. And the thing was, the funny thing about it was, at the time, I didn't even know I had a foreskin, like I wasn't sure, like nobody ever told me. And I was talking to my mate about it. <laughs> And I said to him, like, I don't know if I've got a foreskin or not. And my mate was like, actually, think about it. I don't know. Because, like, if it's been chopped off, it looks like there's more there. Do you know what I mean? Like, the way it kind of forms. And so we didn't know. And so I said, like, I, I don't know how we're going to resolve this. Because if we just show each other our penises, we're never going to get back to a point where we haven't shown each other our penises. <laughs> and, and so I said, like, I think I've got to ring my dad. And so I phoned my dad up. And I said to my dad, I said, have I ever been circumcised? He goes, I don't know, son, you'll have to ask your mother. I said, wouldn't that be something you'd know about your son? If as a baby I was whipped into a side room and part of me was chopped off, I'd know. Can't can't rely on dad's. Anyway, first one was here. So uh, was there an age rating on this show? I'm sorry to the audience, but... um, so, but, uh, to, back to uh, 1979, uh, there, was some, there was naturally fierce opposition to the proposals <laughs> at the time. So there was a councillor called John Blackman, and he called it a flagrant exhibition of mammary glands. 
Um, he also said, we're going too far and people will be offended. I personally have got no objection to people showing their breasts and bosoms and general genitalia to one another. Jolly good luck to them. This but, is what, but this is heavens... what pornography in Hove sounds like. That's how <laughs> they describe it. <laughs> yeah. but, but for heaven's sake, they should go somewhere more private. What distresses me is that people naively believe what is good for the continent is good for Britain. <laughs> so the 59-strong Tory control council was split down the middle, but following a trip to the site by a working party, the proposals were passed. What kind of working party from the council was that? <laughs> Interesting. Apparently there was an army of outraged OAPs. They marched through the streets claiming the beach would foster depravity and attract perverts. <laughs> and I have to say, there are a few. Having been a frequent... Uh, visitor to the, the nature of speech when it gets particularly hot. Um, I walk, so, uh, I don't know, how many, how many of us are here are women? One, two, three, four, you know, five. There's, there's about 500 yeah, people here. I don't like to put labels on. Um, but um, I'm sure that, you know, that when you're uh, walking through town or in the streets with a, a male friend or partner, no one ever says anything to you. You don't get any sort of creepy looks or any cat calls or anything like that. Mm -hmm. As soon as you dare to step out of your front door without somebody next to you, uh, it's instantly... One of my favourite things I've enjoyed doing at the moment is uh, when I get creeps looking at me in the street or kind of perving on me or deliberately... Here's a new one. Uh, slowing down to let me cross the traffic light so when I walk past them they can check out my bum. Every single time. And I turn around <laughs> and I pick my nose really, really obviously and I put it straight in my... I'm not going to put it straight in my mouth and it just... Oh, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of myself. Every time I do it. Um, but there's, there's a heap of that sort of stuff down the nature speech, particularly if you're a woman on your own. Um, I went down there the first time I went on my own and um, I got down there, I mean, it was a, a blisteringly hot day, I'd just driven down from London and I was like, I'm going to go to the beach, screw it, I'm going to go to the nature speech. Took off all my clothes, laid down in a space that was sort of, you know, you know, when you find a good space, there's not too many people around you. Put my sunglasses on, put my head back and then looked up about three minutes later and there's just sort of been a small migration of men towards me and I was effectively surrounded in a circle of, of men. So I called uh, one of my friends who came down to the nature of speech. I was like, look, it's just a bit weird. Do you want to come and hang out? I am in the nude, like, but we're cool, blah, blah, blah. And he came down, very sweet of him, and literally they fucked off within seconds. And then it was... I've actually got a picture on my phone, which I'm more than happy to show you, because I'm proud of my butt. It's cute. I've got a picture of me on the nature of speech that I sent to my friend saying, please come and help me. There's somebody parked just, just there. So there's my butt cheek. There it is. Hang on. There's my lovely peachy little butt. And there's a man just parked right between my legs. There he is. He just decided to park himself right there. So that was the moment where I was like, you need to... You need to come here now. Um, but don't come here now. Yeah, but don't come here now. Um, yeah, so generally, it's a lovely place to be yeah. if you're not a woman on your own. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. Mm. So, so I, I looked on TripAdvisor, which rates the beach at three and a half out of five stars. Um, <laughs> one reviewer, NN201, says, okay. it, it's overlooked from the cliffs, even the railway comes past. If you're an exhibitionist or a voyeur, then this is the place for you in capitals. Um, Lewis wrote, it's less crowded than other beaches, it's nice to relax on, but watch out for overexcited pensioners though, I got a nasty surprise a while mm. back, lol. Mm -mm. Mm, not quite sure what's I going on I prefer to think that pensions don't have penises. Like once you get to 65 you just lose it. It's, it's like action, off. man. <laughs>
Yes. Well, so this really has gone an interesting. I, I shouldn't have introduced these topics. Should I? So, just one thing about the hero, as we called her, the, or heroine, the, the councillor Jake. So, apparently, Eileen posed naked on the beach for the newspapers. It was a big story at the time. But she donated her fee to charity, and apparently, this raised enough money to buy a lifeboat for the RNLI, which is marvellous, isn't it? The station at Brighton Marina. Food to save lives. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and to completely lower the tone at the end of the topic, uh, there are other places where naturism may well take off. That might be Cockermouth, uh, Nether Wallop, and Feltham. <laughs> and, and a completely meaningless stat that I read was uh, apparently there are 614,600,000 pebbles along the six miles of beach at Brighton. And who's going to verify that? Are there any topics which you would like me to cover in the last few minutes? Uh, no, I was going to say so cool. pornography, any kind of nudity, but you already got it, so... <laughs> okay. Tits, tits, bums and tits. Yeah. But we covered That's all of that. what we're all about. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, in that case, I'll just mention that um, ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest in Brighton with uh, Hit Waterloo in 1974. They were playing at Brighton Dome. Um, so that, that's fitting for a history show where we've already mentioned Napoleon. Uh, <laughs> bringing out anything for anybody? And that's clean no. gag to finish on. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Napoleon is wholesome. Yeah. The only only fact that I know about Napoleon is that he was above average height for um, like the general population, right. and the fact that Napoleon's really short or had like a short man complex was invented by the British media. Um, wow. Yeah to like make him feel that's bad awesome. about himself and it was very effective hmm. uh, but yeah that's nice. speaking of someone who is half an inch above average height and therefore quite sensitive about being called short that's why I, I identify with Napoleon we're all sat down today so yeah. no one would know um, the name ABBA comes from the initials of its members I'm sure we know so that's Agnetha Bjorn, if I'm saying this right Bjorn, Benny and Anna Fried. Uh, not to be confused with another group, which is Ingvar, Kamprad, Antarid and Agnarid, known as Ikea. <laughs> uh, people have been known to get trapped inside Ikea looking for the exit. The company do this on purpose, of course, hoping that customers, whilst being held, will develop Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> and be released singing the praises of flat packs, scented candles and meatballs rather than ABBA songs. Um, so, yeah, I, I th we're almost, almost up to our hour. Also, another first, apparently, uh, talking of Brighton Dome, Pink Floyd debuted their Dark Side of the Moon album at Brighton Dome in 1972. So it was actually Floyd's eighth studio album. Um, that album explores themes of conflict, greed, time, death and mental illness, but it's estimated sales of over 45 million copies and uh, first played live in Brighton. Bing Crosby um, did his last concert in Brighton. Aww. But this is a show about first. This is a bit, it's a bit about first. Well, it oh, was so someone doing the a last thing. Point. Don't matter. Yeah. I don't know where his first concert was. I don't think it had anything to do with the 5th of May or Brighton. So was, it, was that at Brighton Dome as well? Or? No, it was at Brighton Centre, I think. Brighton Centre. Yeah. You allowed gazebos there? There's a lot of windows. <laughs> oh, no. I think it's someone else. OK. Well, uh, we'd, time is almost up, so unless you have any final words... Is there anything the audience wants to talk about? Like, we probably no, we don't, don't have time. Don't <laughs> <laughs> well, it just remains for me then to thank our guests. Thank you to David Robinson, Keris Bradley and Danny Harris. 
also like to thank Sweetworks for hosting us and to the Brighton Fringe Festival. I've probably got time just to mention that for the purposes of the podcast, the future shows coming up. So we've got Droitwich Comedy Festival on Sunday 9th of June, 11 o'clock in the Gardener's Arms. Ludlow Fringe, Sunday 23rd of June, 12 o'clock in the sitting room at the Blue Boar. Buxton Fringe on Sunday 21st of July, 13.30 at the Rotunda Theatre. Bedford Fringe, Monday 22nd of July, 19.30 at the Studio Theatre. Guildford Fringe Festival, Wednesday 24th of July, 19.30 at the Star Inn. Reading Fringe, Thursday 25th of July, 19.30 at the Three Guineas. The Great Yorkshire Fringe, Sunday 28th of July, 1800 at 41 Monkgate in York. And finally, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe on Tuesdays, 6th, 13th and 20th of August, 1600 at the Beehive Inn in the Grass Market. As a final on this day, uh, 5th of May is also Memorial Day in the US. And apparently there's a great controversy about who actually started off Memorial Day. So there was a presidential decree by President Johnson in 1966 and designated an official birthplace for the holiday. And that was signed by proclamation. And it turns out that place is Waterloo in New York. That holds the title, officially recognised by the 89th Congress. Waterloo is named after the place that Napoleon was defeated. So I think that kind of rounds off everything nicely for the show. Mm. Thank you very much for coming along. I hope you enjoyed it. The podcast will be out, it just so happened. Might be editing a little bit, we shall see. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for coming along. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, the Swiss, I thought they were conkers. Because it's dark, I couldn't see them. No, I'm fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. That was fun. Oh, <laughs>